0: Politics with Trevor Dan on Cambridge 105 Radio. Yes, hello, we're back with our September edition. Delayed by a change of Prime Minister and then a change of monarch, but still raring to go. In this edition, what does the Police and Crime Commissioner for Cambridge and Peterborough actually do? Well, we'll find out from the man himself, Daryl Preston. And what's it like being an MP? Those three-line whips, the abuse in the chamber, the constituency workload. Heidi Allen went through all that as an MP for South Cams, and she's here to tell us about the lifestyle. We've also got news of an interesting development at Cambridge's Guildhall, and we'll be tackling the congestion charging proposals, the cuts in local bus routes, all of that with our analyst and commentator, Phil Rogers. But first, Phil, now you were in... The queue, and I'm talking about the HMQ to see the lying in state. Um, Briefly, what was it like?
1: Yes, I was. Well, I thought this was, um, you know, a once in a lifetime opportunity, really, for uh, to be to be part of a historical event. So, uh, a bit of a spur of the moment thing. I I, I thought this is. Probably the most British thing that's ever going to happen. <laughs> uh, celebrating the life of the Queen with the the most enormous queue. Um, yeah. So I did go down, and it was about ten hours for me. I I, I joined it about uh, seven o'clock at night and got through at five o'clock the next morning. And I I think I got off fairly lightly, but it was an extraordinary experience, really. Did you um, make friends? Oh yes, I mean by obviously by the time you've been standing next to people <laughs> for for ten hours, you 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 <laughs> kind of know their life story, and and also just. If you do have to queue up for 10 hours, then central London by the Thames at night is is really uh, the best place to do it. There were so many of the landmarks uh, lit up in purple to uh, celebrate the life of the Queen, and uh, it was really a very memorable evening.
0: It's really curious, isn't it, how it's all stopped and we've gone back to like it was before, as though it never happened. It's Cam's politics, and um, while the usual cut and thrust of local politics was suspended for a little while, the controversy about road pricing, that's this idea of five quid to drive into the city, has rumbled on. Anthony Brown MP clearly sees some political mileage in it. He's made a little video attacking the proposals. Um, Phil Rogers, I wonder how you think this is playing out.
1: Well, the usual suspects are sort of having the usual opinions on it. Um, you, you've certainly got, uh, you know, people like the uh, the Liberal Democrats and the cycling campaign in favour, um, the Conservatives obviously against. But I have to say that the sort of overall reaction of, of the people in the middle, if you like, seems to be pretty negative on it. That so we, We've got this very large petition. There are complaints like the hospital is in the zone. People who have to drive out of Cambridge for work will have to pay. And the university park and cycle, the park and rides themselves are outside the zone, but the the university park and cycle is, is within it. Um, a lot of people just not very happy about it. And I think politically, it is going to be quite challenging. We're seeing the council officers coming forward to defend it and the politicians being quite cautious. They're saying, well, we're going to consult, we're going to listen to people, we're going to see what the opinion is. So I think it's got a tricky route forward, really.
0: I think it's going to run and run, isn't it? And it's not necessarily playing out on party political lines. I get the impression that there are people on the left of politics saying, do we really want to be doing this? Because it's it's not going to be a popular move, charging people a lot of money just to move around their town.
1: Yes, I think certainly within the Cambridge Labour Party, there's a good deal of unhappiness about it. It's going to be very expensive for you know, people who can only just afford to run a car as it is. So there's certainly going to be a a lot of controversy about it for a long time to come. Across the city and South Cambridgeshire.
2: Cambridge 105 Radio.
0: It's CAMS Politics for September 2022. I'm Trevor Dan and I'm delighted to welcome to our studio... The voice of the people. Not my definition, but the one on his website. The voice of the people, Darrell Preston, Police and Crime Commissioner for CAMS and Peterborough. That's what you are, the voice of the people. That's a pretty good job, isn't it? Well, I, I think so. I thoroughly <laughs> enjoy my job. Um, and in what way do you speak for us?
3: Well, the Police and Crime Commissioner is a relatively new institution. Before then, we had the the old police authorities made up of uh, councillors and independent members, but but not directly accountable for policing to the public. They weren't voted to do that job, whereas I specifically am. Um, Within that legislation, it actually mentions that one of the primary functions is to listen to the residents and, and different communities, businesses, and to act on the concerns of residents communities and businesses
0: so when this job description also says that you hold the police to account does this mean that you are in any sense their boss
3: no i think we've got to be really careful here and this is the bit that i think people find confusing sometimes Just a little bit about my background, Trevor. I was in the police for 30 years, uh, and then I worked for the Association of Police and Crime Commissioners, so that was my my apprenticeship. To me, it's quite clear. The chief constable has operational independence. It is for them to decide how they deploy their officers and staff uh, and some of the priorities that they will be dealing with, and those priorities uh, will come from uh, government priorities, uh, they will come from their own local priorities, and from those priorities set in a police and crime plan, the police and crime plan of the Police and Crime Commissioner, uh, which I released last year. But the reality is here, um, those those boundaries can be a little bit grey. Government mm-hmm. are looking at this at the moment as part of the PCC review um, because there clearly is always that risk that a police and crime commissioner steps into that operational space. You know, there will be pressure on me from, from residents with concerns uh, in their local areas, we want to see more police here. We want this
0: police station opened. That's actually the role of the chief constable. But I how... think, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I think there's another fear that people might have, which is that you might, in a sense, go native, that you might actually be the representative of the chief constable and the police force. Uh, rather than the representative of the public, because you are, as you said, an ex-policeman, and surely there's a bit of a kind of camaraderie still between you and the present policeman. Does that bother you that people might have that view? That's a really good question. Not the first time it's been asked, actually.
3: Um, I, I'm really clear on what my job is. As I said, I work for the APCC as well. I'm really clear on the roles and responsibilities of a police and crime commissioner and the job of holding the chief constable to account for the effective and efficient policing of of our county. I'm really clear where those boundaries are. I think the chief constable is very clear where those boundaries are. And I'm very clear who my boss is. And
0: my boss uh, are the residents, the electorate of this county. So paint me a picture of a conversation between you, Darrell, and the chief constable. I mean, does he come along and knock on your door and say you know have you got a minute kind of sit there as though he's on trial or is it a bit of a kind of arm around the shoulder let's go down the boozer and chat and see how you're getting on so it's not the latter
3: it's a professional working relationship and i, and I think i think we have a very good professional working relationship but you know don't don't get me wrong one of the responsibilities of a police and crime commissioner is to appoint a chief constable and if it all goes terribly wrong it can be justified is actually to demis, dismiss uh, a chief constable as well well I'd like to say we're not in that position in Cambridgeshire I think we have a pretty good
0: chief constable who's doing a so you're good not job. his boss but you could fire him yes within the
3: legislation absolutely
0: okay so that that's a role of considerable power is it not over, you know, the conduct of of policing in the area that we all live in?
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, it's legislated. It is a role. Uh, yes, it, you could say it's power. Uh, but like with anything, you know, you'd have to have the, the justification. You'd have to take this to a police and crime panel who scrutinise and support me. So, you know, that would be the nuclear option. That's when it's all gone wrong. And, you you know, and to some extent, you don't want to be in that place. But, you know, if you did have a chief constable who was really underperforming, well, I I think our our residents, our communities would expect there to to be
0: a change at the helm. On the subject of of that kind of issue, can I ask you what you think of the uh, behaviour of your opposite number in Nottinghamshire? This is the woman who... Has been fined for speeding five times while in the role that you hold, and she won't resign. What do you think of that?
3: Uh, it's not a matter for me uh, whether uh, I, know I know it's not the PCC <laughs> resigns or not. But, but what know, do you think, Daryl? I, I know that, that she's right? publicly apologised. Uh, I mean, it's interesting. You, you said about going native and from a police perspective. Of course, I you know I don't I don't condone any law breaking, and 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 speeding is is breaking the law. Um, having said that, if you was a, a member of parliament, you wouldn't necessarily be called upon to resign for for for, um, you know, breaking the law in relation to road traffic offences. But I just want to bring it back. I want to be very clear. You know, I'm I'm, I'm tough on the road safety bit. Uh, and I think, you know, the PCC has apologised whether she resigns or not is a matter for her. And would you
0: if, if you were caught, would you go? In those circumstances?
3: I think it would depend on I prefer not to not to actually break the law, not get caught <laughs> uh, that's where I think I'm at
0: <laughs> Alright, now um, you mentioned that you'd been in the Metropolitan Police for some years and you were there at the time of the Stephen Lawrence affair and the uh, accusation that the Met was institutionally racist. Do you look back on that time with pride? Do you think the Metropolitan Police was, was doing a good job?
3: Yes, I do look back with pride, and I think the vast majority of our brave police officers, men and women, and our staff did an excellent job serving their communities, and I'm hoping that I, I was one of them. Yes, there would have been problems. It's a very large organisation. So
0: that's the kind of, there were a few bad apples argument, isn't it? Well, I-
3: you know, the extent of it, at the time, I wasn't a senior officer and I wasn't the mayor, uh, so I didn't have the detail. Some, the some people might
0: say that you'd be more likely to spot that kind of attitude and those ideas if you were at the, uh, the bottom of the tree rather than at the top.
3: Yeah, that's a good point. I, I think society has changed I mean, in some attitudes, you know, let, let, let's be honest, around a number of different things. When I joined the police... There there was no uh, um, uh, people openly gay within in the the police, and it just started, and I joined. And you know, I I welcome that, absolutely welcome that. And I, I I reflect back, and I don't recall any any colleagues that I was close to having any significant issues. And that's just just one. Now, that's not to say that there there would be issues across. It was a very large organisation, and that's not to say that there was perhaps issues with the structure, with the management, with the leadership, with the culture. But I still go back to this point, Trevor, that the vast majority of police officers then, as today, are good, good people putting themselves in harm's way to protect us.
0: I suppose the context for this conversation is that in my lifetime, we've gone from Sergeant Dixon in Dot Green to line of duty, and it's all about bank coppers. There is I would say a prevailing attitude that the police are not quite to be trusted in the way that they were. You must have some sympathy for that argument. Yes? No?
3: Well, I have some sympathy for that. On of fact, that, That's how people feel. Because I'm, I'm, I keep quoting this, Trevor, that policing is based on some fundamental principles. The Peelian principles back in 1829 or 39. Um, and one of those is about policing by consent. And that's why my police and crime plan, ethical policing, is there. You know, going back, yes, I was a police officer, but I absolutely recognise the requirement for the very highest standards uh, within our police service. Um, I know the Chief Constable does as well, uh, and that's why we will invest in in anti-corruption and those disciplinary areas, because it's really
0: important that we do so. Do you take a strong view on um, having a diverse police force, having you know women as well as men you know black and south asian people as well as white people is that is that whole recruitment thing important to you yeah it's really important uh, because it comes back to that other pelian principle
3: you know the police of the public and the public of the police it's got to reflect our communities and i think policing has found that hard. Uh, Many other sectors have found that hard as well. Uh, We're doing much, much better when it comes to gender now. In fact, I've been attending some of the recent passing out parades of our new recruits. I'm seeing on some of the courses there are more women than men. That's, That's great because we need to get those Those numbers up, Um, and and when it comes to some of the the ethnic communities, there are some that are more difficult uh, to to reach out to. But there is lots of work going on there. Uh, If there's one appeal, I always I'll always take the opportunities that you know there's so much policing can do, and they need to be doing more to recruit. A diverse or more diverse workforce uh, you know but I also wherever I go and I I, I go into lots of different communities and my, my
0: appeal and request is well come come and join the police you know let, let's let's work together So, as you mentioned, this is a a political role in the sense that you have to stand as a member of a political party to be elected. I suppose you don't really, but you did. Uh, So you stood representing the party that has made substantial cuts to the police force in the last 10 or 15 years. How do you feel about that as a member of the party?
3: Well, as a member of the party, I mean, I'll I'll reflect on what we now have is a government who's made a significant investment. In policing, following those austerity years. I mean, uh, you know, I, OK, I, I'm a Conservative member, but we did have austerity. You know, an argument was is that we needed to do so. Uh, you know, we, we were in dire straits as a country economically, and that needed to recover uh, so that we could invest in our public services. And I, I firmly believe that was the right thing to do. But I think we need to look at here and now we, we have significant investment in policing. Do I want more? Well, I'm the Police and Crime Commissioner. Yes, I do want more. Um, but we've got a 20,000 police officer national uplift. And th- there's no messing around with the numbers. That's the facts. And that's been funded.
0: And you do lobby your colleagues in the party in in government? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, hotline to the
3: policing <laughs> minister and the Home Secretary. And, and I'll, I'll be really clear. You know, when we're talking politically as well, I said before who my boss is. My boss are the residents of our great county, uh, and I will I will fight for them first. So I'll give you an example. Uh, I have said this before. Uh, Cambridge Constabulary is one of the, the worst, poorest funded um, police forces in the country. Uh, yet, you know, we, we still, the Chief Constable, I think, still think does a pretty good job in keeping us safe. But that's not fair. And I, I've lobbied. I've lobbied this government. Uh, To be fair, that funding formula has has been there for successive governments. Um, And it's probably been put in the too difficult to deal with box. But it's not right that that in this county, per head of capita, we get far less funding than other counties. So I'm fighting really hard. And as a result of of myself and, and others, we do currently have a review of that funding formula. And I'm hoping to see a much better deal for Cambridgeshire in the future.
0: Now, obviously, we have to pay for you, you know uh your salary is something in excess of 70 grand and that's for a full-time job so i mean some people would say that's probably all right but i noticed looking at your website you have 15 staff including a business support officer and a head of business development and a director of commissioning and a communications and engagement manager darrell what do they all do all day long well,
3: you know, this is a question that's often levelled at police and crime commissioners, and that's the political question, isn't it? So we're bound I, to right? ask yeah, it. though. is yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. that? So let's that's let's a take big it back organisation you're running. Yeah, no, you're right. But before police and crime commissioners, all those roles and functions that were carried out by staff in my office were carried out by police staff and constabulary staff. So, for example, I've got some statutory responsibilities. One of them is around supporting victims and witnesses. I get a fairly substantial grant from the Ministry of Justice. But but we have to resource that. You know, that's not going to happen on its own. You know, so some of my staff will be dealing with that. Some of my staff will be dealing with some of the other statutory things we do around police and crime panels and governance. Um, but here's the other thing. If you look at the, 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 the cost, and no doubt you've done your, <laughs> done your maths there, you know, just over a million yeah. pounds. My, my staff bring in far more than that in, in funds from central office by the great work they're doing, putting bids in. To protect- so is that
0: what you mean by business development? Which, it's not the same as a kind of sales operation that you would have in a normal company, is it?
3: N- no, no, not not quite the same. Not quite the same. You're quite right there. But uh, as I say... So you're uh,
0: seeking funding, and or, or your people are seeking funding from other agencies, including government? Yes, we are, and we do a really good job. At it. You know, in,
3: in the past year, we've bought in far more money than actually what my office costs, and that's money going directly out to keeping our communities safe, and I'm really proud of that.
0: And one other little thing I just wanted to uh, tease out is... Uh, Looking at the way the votes fell in May 2021, the election was won by you, um, but you didn't do very well in Cambridge. In fact, you came third, quite badly third. And so there would be an argument to say that the people who elected you are largely the people of Huntingdonshire and Fenland and, and Peterborough, not so much the people of the city of Cambridge. So what would you say to people sitting around us where we are now for whom you were, were not the preferred candidate
3: well, well i'd say to the great people of the city of cambridge that it's irrelevant whether you voted for me or not i'm still your police and crime commissioner and my number one priority is keeping you safe i mean i spend spent a lot of time in in fact we talked about being in the police i was in the police at parkside you know my children were born at Adam Brooks. it's a city that i know well and that i love um we're making investments in, in some projects here. in fact just just Following this uh, interview, I'm up the road there to, to meet some colleagues and we're investing in some youth activities around the skate park there which people have been fighting for and that's out of money from uh, proceeds of crime You know, money taken from criminals in the first place and putting it back into the community um, and I'll, I'll say this as well yes it's a political role but I've got some pretty good relationships with uh, our local councillors uh, and the Mayor of Cambridge as well who I was sitting down with the other day and I, I believe we work together Um, But, you know, I I, I take the point, you know, I'm an elected. Uh, It's clearly up to people which way they vote. I mean, let's be honest, as a Conservative, it's going to be more difficult in in Cambridge maybe than in Finland. But to to me, that's irrelevant. And the the other thing I'd say, I've actually spent quite a lot of time canvassing and knocking on doors and talking to people in Cambridge. You know, sometimes that's probably a bit of a shock there. I'm as a Conservative knocking on your door. but. You know, I, I'm not there to talk politics. I'm, I'm there to talk about, you know, you know, keeping our communities safe, policing, and, and what my role is. And I
0: generally, I think it goes down pretty well. One final thing. There's been a report this week about the increasing gun crime uh, nationally, not curiously in London, where it seems to have gone down. The east of England is one of the areas where it's gone up, arguably doubled. Um, your pledge to keep crime down. Why is gun crime going up? Well, I, I haven't got the figures for Cambridgeshire,
3: but I, I don't think we've seen a significant increase here in Cambridgeshire. And in fact, in, in Cambridgeshire, yes, you know, we, we have some some you know sig- significant issues on occasions in relation to county lines and drugs and, and guys, but nowhere near, nowhere near some of those metropolitan uh, cities and, and what's going on elsewhere. There, there's plenty of reasons and research. In fact, I was a policy lead for serious violence in a, in a previous role. Um, you know, a lot of this is, is when it comes to firearms offences, it's around drugs and it's around county lines. There is significant investment from government around this. Uh, the constabulary, it, it's, a, it's a key priority to tackle that, that gang, county lines and, uh, and, and firearms offences. But, you know, what, what I would say is that when you're dealing with a very low data set, so here in Cambridgeshire we have very few firearms and, and gun crimes and, and homicide fortunately and thankfully but when you're dealing with such few you know what one or two can really skew those figures but it's really important that we stay on top of it
0: okay so final thing how do people reach you if they have an issue that they think you could resolve for them
3: well, if they go onto my website, which is just putting in Cambridgeshire PCC, we'll come straight up there. Um, I've actually been, I've, I've, I've had a number of people say how easy it is to contact me and how grateful they are that my, and we talked about my team there. We get back to people, you know, we don't just let them hang in. So uh, they, they can either do it by telephone, they can do it by email uh, or, or through the contact list there as well. So, and I, I make this plea, please do contact me in the office. Um, I, I've, I've yet to turn down talking to anybody in our county. I'm, I'm trying to make it 100%. <laughs> throughout my
0: term but um i i enjoy talking
3: to people because you get really really to understand well thanks happening.
0: very much for coming in and talking to cambridge 105 radio that was daryl preston who's the police and crime commissioner for cambridgeshire and peterborough thank you daryl thank you very much trevor so there we are phil rogers he's the police and crime commissioner are you any of the wiser about what he actually gets up to
1: well, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, lis- listening to that, it's certainly clear that it's not really nearly as political a role as, as say, the mayor. I mean, they, they were elected at the same time. The Labour Mayor got in by a narrow margin and and the Conservative Police and Crime Commissioner only got in by a fairly narrow margin as well. But really, it's much more about the sort of relationship with the chief constable and representing what people are saying. But there's also a good deal of, well, that's an operational matter coming through, I think. And uh, we when whenever there's sort of something controversial going on it seems to be the responsibility of the of the chief constable and the the operational side so i do think the jury is out on on how effective pccs are in general
0: here's junior mervin on cam's politics <laughs> Here's a little story that we saw the other day that made us think, I wonder what's going on there. <laughs> Council Mike Davey, who's um, Labour representative from Petersfield, one of them, also executive councillor for finance, he can tell us this is about the Guildhall and the ground floor of the Guildhall, which you're going to let out for shops and a cafe and all, all that kind of thing. What's all that about, Mike?
4: Good afternoon, Trevor. I, th- I think we were very keen post the pandemic, to look at how we used all our properties across the city. And it became apparent for some time that we can't and won't be using all the Guild Hall. So we wanted to try and use it in a way that was positive and productive for the city, and at the same time, encourage local business, local community to involve themselves within the city centre. So because we have the space, we, we entered into negotiations with Dahlia, who have a responsibility for looking at how they can develop small businesses, how they can develop local community organisations, and it seemed like a natural fit. So and might after,
0: you be making? Might the city council be getting some revenue out of this?
4: Well, we, we, yeah, there's rent, but but uh, it's at a, 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 what we would argue is a reasonable level, and obviously, Alia see <laughs> otherwise they wouldn't agree because they're in other spots within the city as well and so alia have come in as our partners and they will use the city centre facility to take forward particularly around local community groups and we know already that there's been a pretty positive response from those local community groups
0: so what will we see when we're in the market square and we look up at what used to be a lot of blank kind of office windows what will be there instead
4: well without going into the detail the entrance is likely to be on the side rather than in front of the market square and so you'll probably have access there do you do you know where the old harry potter shop is oh of was course absolutely and the cafe yeah there? so that's the area that i think alia will probably use for access because there's a number of shop fronts there that people can use in addition to which the public-facing stuff. There'll be office space as well on that bottom floor that, again, Alia will be able to use, and sorry, Alia and the people that they sublets to will be able to use for their activities. I don't think you'll see any difference to the main frontage on the Market Square of the Guildhall for a while yet.
0: Now, is this largely because a lot of your stuff are now working from home?
4: It, it's not. It's part of the process. I suppose post-COVID, Trevor, what's happened is that uh, people, and we have encouraged folk to look at their working practices to try and maximise the benefit to them so that they can feel productive while still mixing that work-life balance more productively and obviously uh, as long as they are working uh, at home then clearly we're we're happy to facilitate that process which means that as a result of that we need less office space and so we're starting to now look at the uh, our entire accommodation needs across the city and this is one of the early outlets of that before we decide what to finally do with the properties as a whole
0: and just one word about alia Um, they're described as a non-profit organization which always slightly worries me Um, are they really non-profit and in in which case what are they in it for
4: they're a charity they're in to facilitate local businesses to thrive to start setups to help and support charities so i think i mean i i think the not-for-profit there's entirely um viable and a valuable service that they offer to cambridge
0: and when you come to review this what does success look like
4: Ah, that's, that is a good question. I think um, the I think after two years, we would expect to see the downstairs, obviously, fully operational and functional. We'd like to see some vibrancy that's gone into the city centre and, and there's various different organisations that are working with it. So we will review it on a regular basis with Alia. But obviously, at the same time, we want to give them, we, it's, it's trying to get that balance right, isn't it? We wanted to give them space to get on. But as I say, in two years' time, to sit back and look and say, right, has this worked for you? And equally, has it worked for, for us?
0: Well, thanks very much, Mike. And that's Councillor Mike Davy, who's Executive Councillor for Finance, Resources and Transformation at Cambridge City Council. Thank you, Trevor. Thank you very much. Well, Phil Rogers, that seems reasonably sensible, doesn't it?
1: Yes, I think, you know, we've got this... Massive, great building in the middle of Cambridge, and let's let's make the best use of it. I think I mean, we we've had various uh, shops, and and we have restaurants at the moment in in parts of the Guildhall, and uh, it's a building we we should make the most of.
0: Well, I think we're going to see a lot more people working from home, aren't we? If these plans from Stagecoach. Go ahead. And if the mayor can't find the £1.7 million to subsidise the routes they want to take away, this is not a very good thing, is it, to be happening at the same time as we're talking about road pricing and trying to encourage more people to use public transport?
1: That's right. I mean, the whole road pricing scheme is in order to subsidise the buses a great deal more and uh, have a lot more buses a lot more frequently. Uh, But what we're seeing right now is Stagecoach withdrawing these 18 routes across quite a wide range of uh, different parts of the county. The mayor has come in with this uh, proposed £1.7 million rescue package. But whether he'll be able to uh, deploy that in time or whether he's actually going to find a bus operator to run it really remains to be seen over the next few weeks. And this is very much not what people wanted to see, particularly given that the congestion charge is supposed to be going to improving bus services across the county.
0: Wasn't the, the old mayor, James Palmer going to do something involving bus franchising, and now he's sort of saying, well, no, I I never was, and it's all Nick Johnson's fault.
1: Yes, I mean, bus franchising has been talked about for a long time, but I don't think it's necessarily the answer to these issues. It, it, It will have its own challenges. It'll take a long time to bring it in, and the question is still, how much is it going to cost to run these services? Bus use has gone down quite a bit since the pandemic, more people working from home. You know, Stagecoach are withdrawing these routes because Stagecoach is a commercial organization and they're interested in making money. If we have a bus franchise system, then we'll have the mayor saying what bus routes he wants to run, but he'll still have to get a, a commercial bus operator to run them and either subsidize that or make sure it's gonna make enough money to keep itself going.
0: More music now and then we'll meet
1: Heidi Allen.
2: I would be complex. I would be
0: cool.
2: Then I'd be the mayor.
0: Taylor Swift and a live version of The Man on Cam's Politics. Cambridge 105 Radio.
2: Find us on Twitter at Cambridge 105. Well,
0: we talk a lot on this programme about MPs' policies and sometimes even their philosophies, but what's it actually like being? a Member of Parliament. Here's someone who can tell us. Heidi Allen was MP for South Cams between 2015 and 2019. Thanks for joining us, Heidi. How are you? We haven't heard from you for ages.
2: <laughs> no, I'm really good, Trevor. Thank you. And thanks for inviting me. The uh, Being an MP, the constituency part, I have to tell you, um, from my point of view, was the best part of the job and the bit that I miss, if I'm honest. I was going to
0: start by asking you about that Curious thing that happens if you're attracted to be an MP, you're probably somebody who enjoys the cut and thrust of debate. You've had arguments with people and then you get to Westminster and basically get told what you think all the time. You have to vote this way. The whips tell you that you must do this. Think that. Say this. Is there a sort of constraint about being an MP that you find frustrating? So
2: being told what to think and what to say, that's a memo I think I never got, Trevor. That was uh, a bit I never quite got the hang of. And I tell you what, if I ever went back, I wouldn't next time either. Um, but, but you are absolutely right. That's kind of how it is. And that was the biggest shock to me, I'll be honest, when I arrived, um, because I wasn't expecting that at all. Um, although anybody that will know me knows I got into politics um, quite impulsively and very quickly not having a political background. Um, but you're right that it does kind of, t- it seems at least to take away the individuality of thought and, and people's passion and desire. Um, I hope that never happened to me. I always tried to be very true to myself. Um, but it is, a, it is a strange environment. I would agree with that. How do
0: the whips work on you? You know, is it a, a little private word uh, in the stranger's bar or, you know, what, what, how do they use their power Uh, to try and get you to do what they want?
2: Well, there are different techniques, it's fair to say. (laughs) Um, Most of which didn't really work on me terribly well. Um, I fired my first whip. But there's there's a range, and, you know, I joke about it. Um, I had good and bad relationships with my whips. You have different whips over time. It should be, in my view, a bit like an HR manager, somebody who talks to you, how you are feeling? This is a difficult vote that's coming up. What is it that you're worried about? Let's talk about it. And then respect your view if you really can't come to terms of what the government or your party wants you to do. no two whips that were like that from memory. And then on the other end of the spectrum, never happened to me, but I physically saw one of our region's MPs, and I won't say who, being physically manhandled into the lobby, and I mean physically grabbed by her shoulders and dragged into the lobby that the government wanted. So that's the other end of the spectrum. Uh, I tell you what, if they'd ever tried to lay a finger on me, they would have got a short (laughs) shift. But that is literally how it can be at one extreme.
0: Well, look, that brings me on to something I was going to ask you about as well. I don't know whether you've heard the Sky podcast about, you know, the latest kind of sex pest revelations. You know, being a woman in Parliament is reckoned to be a fairly dangerous environment. Did, Did you get any of that?
2: Yeah, there is a lot of lechiness that goes on and a lot of kind of patting on the head. Yes, little girl, you know, let me explain to you what it's all about. I remember, um, I'm trying to think who it was now, was it? Um, I think it's PTSD, my brain's (laughs) made me forget (laughs) most of what happened. But one um, one very senior um, old Brexiteer Tory once tried to take me to one side and explain to me what Brexit was all about. And he could help me understand, and therefore start voting the correct way. So there is a lot of you are patronised. There can be a lot of alcohol that's going around if it's if it's a late vote, and there's a lot of you know good manners as well. I wouldn't want people to think that it's all like that, but there's certainly an element of very old-fashioned behaviour. It's an old institution, and with it comes very old-fashioned ways.
0: I think that there's a sense, isn't there, from some of the latest revelations that inappropriate behavior as we now call it is kind of sanctioned or at least you know a little bit of bottom pinching never did anyone any harm. You, you sort of feel as though that's the attitude.
2: Do you feel any of that? Yeah there is some of that. I mean there's one MP who's in prison now who tied it on with me so that there is some of that that goes on. but you know I've worked in um, a lot of different industries before I got into politics. And I think it's just about power. It's not just politics, it's an industry often that is heavily male dominated where they just think it's okay. I remember having my bottom smacked by a very senior executive at Yamaha Motorcycles who thought it was all right to slap me on the bum as he was escorting me out of the building. So, you know, it happens in other walks of life, it's not just politics, but there is something about that whiff of power Mm. that makes you, I don't know whether it's testosterone or makes you think you're invincible, you can do what you like, and crucially, and most worryingly in a political environment, that the rules are that the kind of everyone else has to live by don't apply to you because you're somehow better or special. And that's the slippery slope I think we have in Westminster.
0: Now, what about cross-party friendships, relationships, you know, you hear more, for instance, in America about across the aisle working. In Westminster, it seems as though, you know, if you're a Tory and you're even seen with somebody from the Labour Party or the other way around, that your career might be finished. You know, is it possible to make uh, friendships across the aisle?
2: Yeah, I've got
0: loads of them. I think that was half Well, possible. you did. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I suppose I'm asking the wrong person here. You maybe had more friends across the aisle than you had on your own side.
2: <laughs> Who can say? <laughs>
0: do you um, see that happening? That, yes, it
2: that does. That people
0: do find things in common?
2: Yeah, I think there's there's, there's a couple of things. There. Friendships are friendships and they should be just because you have, I don't know, a love of dogs in common or whatever it might be. You know, in late nights do, you know, you chat. So, you know, there are pro- proper what I would call normal friendships where people have things in common. But there are also common um, themes and passions that people work on. And select committees are a really good example of that, because select committees, of course, are comprised by a blend of MPs from different parties. And you would have MPs you know, who are particularly interested in that topic. And collectively, to more or less of a degree, they will be grilling a minister, at, you know, a session about a topic that they're interested in. So that gives commonality although that ability to kind of engage with the opposition, if you like, and have shared common interests and and bring the government to account does seem to be more required when you have been a minister and then um, sacked. It seems that people's ability or MPs ability to talk to others and take a different view to the government appears to increase. I can't imagine why that is (laughs) when you realise your career is on the way out and you don't need to play the game anymore.
0: Who would want to suggest that Patronage is what keeps uh, the ordinary MP in line. You know, the thought that you'll get that important job on the uh, payroll. I
2: think we'll be living that example in in, in the weeks to come as I our should, new prime minister. I, I should say so. Uh,
0: <laughs> now you mentioned earlier, Heidi, that you liked the constituency side, and I suppose some people would say that you're quite lucky if you're based in Westminster, but your constituency is just a forty-minute train ride away. Many of your contemporaries have got hours and hours to get to their constituencies. But it must, on the other hand, be a busy week. You know, can you give me an idea of the kind of hours that you had to put in when you were an MP?
2: You're right. And it is busy. And, you know, I deliberately selected a constituency that would allow me to come home when the option was there, um, because I I didn't want to lose sense of who I was. And, you know, being a normal person, seeing my husband in the evenings, that, that seemed to me to be quite a good way to keep your feet on the ground. But you're right. Some MPs would be hundreds of miles away. I used to feel for some of the SNP um, MPs who represented out of flung islands who had, you know, two airplanes, a ferry and a, and a taxi who knows what to get home. But you know, on an average week, I wouldn't get home every night. You know, the last year for me was different because you'll remember it was the Brexit stalemate period where there was literally nothing going through the commons and I could get home most nights. But ordinarily, on a Monday, last votes um, will be about 10 o'clock, 10.30 at night. And if there are multiple votes, they could go on for an hour, hour and a half. Um, Tuesday and Wednesday would be closer to a nine, 9.30 finish. Thursday, you're lucky if you can get away at six. So they are, it is a peculiar kind of week. And then on top of that, as well as the the hours where the commons is operating, if you like, you have all the select committees, you're meeting organisations, you may be talking for me to charities or my constituents, perhaps who travelled down if they couldn't wait until the surgery when I came home, who travelled down to meet me. So it would be, you'd be kind of starting emails, of course, goodness me, let's not even start talking about emails and the amount of reading you had to do. But your day would start, I don't know, 7am earlier if you're doing the Today programme, if you've got to be, you know, doing some kind of press beforehand, and if you're in bed by 12.30, well, it's been a good day. It's a very, very long days. Um, and then weekends, you'll have a surgery perhaps. This time of year for me, Trevor would have been opening fates and zooming about all over the constituency. Fridays would be very busy trying to pack in as many visits as you can. So it really is a seven day a week job and very, very long hours, if you do it properly in my view.
0: All MPs say when they're elected that they want to represent all their constituents. Now, is that possible? As a Tory, do you feel equally well disposed towards, you know, a Lib Dem voter or a Labour voter? C- can you toss those kind of party loyalties aside once you are elected?
2: I think you should. I mean, it's it's practically, not, of course, not possible to represent every single person, every single view, because unless all 30,000 of them email you on every topic, you're never going to know everybody's views. And some people are more interested in some things than others. But what I think you have a duty to do is to listen if a constituent gets in touch with on a topic, it doesn't matter, you don't ask them, you know, before I answer your email, will you tell me how you vote, please? I mean, absolutely not. That's just, that's not representation. But I think how you respond or how you vote or how you um, perhaps take up their concern with a minister or, or whatever the mechanism was, that should be done completely blind of politics. That should be about doing the best thing you can for that constituent. And sometimes it's telling them something Well, I I don't agree with you. I can't vote that way. Or I I, I don't think the minister would help you with that. Whatever it might be. Honesty is a big part of it. But none of it should be politically motivated, in my view.
0: And is it true that you can get help for a constituent? You know, there is a sense, isn't there, that once MPs, particularly if they become ministers, which I know you didn't, but... There's a sense that once they've drifted off into the Westminster bubble, they really forget about their constituents. You know, is it can you genuinely help somebody who's got a problem?
2: One hundred percent. You know, and like any, you know, even if I had been a minister, even if the biggest, you know, chief exec in the world of a massive company has a big job, but we'll have a fabulous team. Okay, now as an MP and a minister, you are limited by what you're allowed to spend on staff. You know, and that's part of the public purse, and that's that's understandable but I had a phenomenal team. My girls, as I call them, particularly Paula and Nicola and Natalie, who I had in Westminster, were as caring and worrying. You know, Paula and Nicola would, would take shopping around to somebody's door if they knew that their benefit hadn't come through on time and they were going to have no food for their kids that night. So if you have a great team who has that passion, then I think it is possible, even when you have a big job, to still deliver a really cracking service to your constituents. Um, I probably got, more involved maybe than I should do which is why I found it so exhausting in the end you know I want to see the really difficult emails Um, I'd get involved probably more than I should but everybody has to do the job differently but can an MP get answers for you can they make a nuisance of whoever they need to make themselves a nuisance of to get an answer absolutely they can
0: now since you left I mean you've been spotted around and about cambridge doing all sorts of ordinary things like going to the click and collect at the supermarket
2: oh i'm inspired (laughs) (laughs) how
0: does it feel being an ex mp is it like being somebody who used to be on strictly come dancing that people kind of vaguely know who you are but they're not sure
2: just the same but without the fake tan um just for the record i always went to um to morrison's or click and collect tesco that, that's not a new phenomenon i always used to do that all busy people will know that they quite often use those services i suppose covid happened literally the minute after i stood down You know, i was winding up my office they gave you till the end of february and um, 19 um, 20 rather as it was then of course the covid restrictions came in in march april didn't they Mm-hmm. so now i'm just emerging like most people are just emerging in the last 12 months and it, it, you, i can't pretend you don't remember what your job used to be because you are always a little bit alert when i when i go out to supermarket or you know whatever running errands and things but by and large you know if people do come up to me and say hello they're always very lovely and they say oh what are you up to heidi Course, you look look better. <laughs> you don't look as tired as you used to do. <laughs> lost a bit of weight. Um, so generally they're very kind to me. But you are a little bit always on edge. I can't pretend that you're not. But in a, kind of in a nice way.
0: So uh, I'm about to ask you then, what are you up to now?
2: <laughs> i up to I was supposed to get that life work, life work balance sorted, it wasn't I, Trevor? I failed miserably to yeah. do that. Um so I'm back in our manufacturing business almost full-time. We've continued to grow despite COVID. Um, I'm the chair of Cambridge Housing Association. I work two days a week for the RSPCA. I'm doing a couple of um, political consultancy jobs, and I'm a, a trustee on um, a couple of poverty charities. So, I'm a five fellow of one of the Cambridge uh, colleges. So, I've got a reasonable amount on my plate still.
0: And are you still a member of a political party?
2: <laughs> I'm not. No, I had a green. I had a green post at <laughs> the last district elections. <laughs> all I'm missing, I think, is Labour and UKIP, and then I've done the full. I've, I've, got, I've got my bingo card all ticked off.
0: Thanks a lot, Heidi See you soon. Bye bye. Well, Phil Rogers, do you fancy the job?
1: Well, I think the my impression from uh, from what what we've heard from Heidi and from from other MPs as well is when when they're doing the job properly, it is an awful lot of work. I mean, MPs are paid pretty well. Uh, it's 84k for a backbencher, but. Frankly, if you've got the drive and determination and the skills to become an MP, you could make a lot more money than that with a lot less hassle in other areas. So I I really don't think most MPs are in it for the money. Uh, I think they're in it because they really want to make a difference. And they actually can make a difference um, in many cases, particularly with the taking up casework on behalf of the constituents.
0: One of the things that came out of that for me was that Heidi is quite stubborn and will not do what she's told, which, of course, is what makes her a great, I would argue, constituency MP. But she was never going to last, was she, in that hurly-burly of party politics?
1: Well, it was a it was a mad time in in, in British politics, and <laughs> I mean, it was. is a shame she's 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 not in the Commons now. And uh, you know, we could do with more MPs who will uh, stand up to the whips a bit.
0: Well, next week, uh, which is the show that brings us back onto a normal keel of starting on at 12 noon every uh, first Sunday of the month. So on next week's programme, we'll have another former MP, Julian Hoppert, And we've also, as the Labour Party conference starts, we've got the current MP for Cambridge, Daniel Zeichner. We think we may also have Anthony Brown, but we can't confirm that yet. Uh, Phil Rogers, thanks for joining us on this uh, special edition of CAMS Politics. Look forward to seeing you next week.
1: I'll look forward to that.
0: Thanks this week to Daryl Preston, to Mike Davey and to Heidi Allen, also our researcher Noah Keat. We'll leave you with some take that. Thanks for listening.
2: On your radio, mobile and smart speaker.
1: This is Cambridge 105 Radio.